This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Thank you. Greetings. This is Dr. David Pomeroy, the host of ADHD Focus, with the purpose of bringing real information and some of the latest information to all those listening who are interested in or have ADHD. Have you ever wondered why the various treatments you've had for ADD once it's been diagnosed may not answer some of the issues you have? Are there still things that grab you emotionally that you just can't figure out? My guest today is James Ochoa, a licensed professional counselor in Austin, Texas, and director of the Life Empowerment Center. And he has a unique perspective on this, and I'm so glad to be able to have him on the show today to talk about it. James, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, David. I really, really appreciate you having me on and um, helping people to understand what I've discovered on the ADHD spectrum uh, regarding emotional and mental stress is really, really something I'm passionate about and have been for years. So I'm really looking forward to our talk today. Yeah, um, I was fascinated to see on your uh, website, uh, tlec.com, is that right? Is it .com or .info? Right. Uh, dot, dot info actually yes um, TLEC dot info um, the emotional distress syndrome which is what you've identified as going on for all of us with ADHD that may be enough in the background that we don't know it as that term but can identify with a lot of the uh, the things that go into it so I'm interested right. to know what were you seeing um, that led you to put this together? How does it show up for people with ADD? Well, I uh, appreciate that. And let me, uh, I would start with, uh, you know, I began working with ADHD in 1989. So I've been around the block a few times. And yeah. way back in 1989, it was, uh, I worked in a summer day treatment program for children diagnosed with ADHD uh, and one of the things I noticed in working in that program is that, uh, you know, we were using behavioral modification techniques, we were using medication, all those things were kind of the, uh, the answers of the day to really help get a strong structure around these children uh, to help them kind of corral their symptoms. Uh -huh. um, and I, I tell a story, David, that, you know, I was playing a card sorting game with a six-year-old uh, and so there are 50 pairs in this card sorting game. Um, and he was consistently getting anywhere from about 44 to 45 of the matching pairs in every game I played him. Now, you know, I'm 26 years old. Here's a six-year-old who's mastering this game of card <laughs> matching. And I just simply asked him, I said, you know, how are you doing that? And he said, I take pictures. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean you take pictures? He says, I take pictures of the cards. So mm -hmm. here is this hyperactive, 
impulsive six-year-old, throws chairs, bites other kids, really, really tough time with impulsive behavior, uh, but he has a photographic memory. I can identify no, I 100%. I used to play, uh, watch the, a game called Concentration, which was on TV yes. a long time ago, and yes. I could solve it every time because I knew, oh, right. that one's over there. So I know right. how it it's works. Those, exactly. So that visual memory and that photographic space that he was able to, to, to do at six years old, uh, the tragedy, David, is that you know I went home that night as a 26-year-old uh, and thought, we could have missed that. We could have really just completely mm-hmm. looked over that space because of the disruptive nature of ADHD and little did I know that uh, it was really birthing a passion at that point to work with it because I wanted to make sure that the disruption that it creates doesn't, uh, we don't lose connection with the individual diagnosed with it. They don't lose connection to their personality or their characteristics. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, uh, and so I really started on a hunt in 1989 <clears throat> I work through the 90s in understanding neurological development along the lines of learning. Um, I understood, you know, the use of medication with ADHD. I understood, you know, different aspects of creating strategies and routines. And all those things were incredibly helpful. But mid to late 90s, David, um, I began to consistently see, right, that the emotional and mental stress of the condition that was set up through lack of follow-through, not staying Mm -hmm. organized, saying something I didn't mean to, was constantly throwing these individuals diagnosed with it um, out of balance. And they would feel ashamed, they would feel embarrassed, and I'm thinking, okay, now I'm a professional counselor, Uh, routines and strategies aren't enough, educating them about the neurology isn't enough, medication isn't slowing this down enough, And so I had to begin to view it as a chronic uh, condition that wasn't going to go away. Um, And I began to conceptualize it as the idea of of, of an emotional distress syndrome because it was something that wouldn't go away. And it was something that spun off of the diagnosis of ADHD Uh uh, as a result of the neurological and the behavioral challenges that come as a result of it. So now I had a syndrome with it. Uh, I began treatment like a post-traumatic stress disorder. I began to get some changes in that. Uh, But as I write about it in my book, Focused Forward, uh, you really have to go deeper than that. You know, I had to help people rebuild an internal sense of themselves so that they could really Mm. feel more effective in their life. But I think uh, resolving the emotional distress syndrome, as I talk about it with ADHD, is just such a critical, critical factor uh, in the long-term management and teaching adults and anyone with ADHD how to navigate it in their lives. Yeah, yeah, I, and and that certainly I've seen in my 11 years of experience now uh, with over 3,000 patients, I think, the, mm-hmm. the fact that some people seem to be doing okay and then something upsets what I call the foundation. They, they move. Right. They have a baby, they get divorced, they have a new job, they get fired from their job, whatever it is, and now they're coping and everything else, their routines are all shifted. Um, yes. And certainly yeah. 
you know, having a child, whether it's father or mother in the, in the family, brings up all kinds of family tapes and things. Uh, losing a job, that just ends up more of the shame. Even if it isn't related to ADD issues, all those kinds of things affect then what appear to be the ADHD symptoms get worse. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It, it exacerbates all those, right? And it really mm-hmm. does throw them into all kind of tailspins. So, you know, I really discovered this as kind of what I talk about is through an organic method of being in front of it for so long and having to uh, create systems and ideas um, to really manage it long term. So that that's the, the person with ADHD create systems. They or do. you're helping they them do. create systems. I, I am are. helping them create systems. And I, and I think if I was to, to overview that real quickly or uh, briefly, really what we're looking at is, you know, I think the diagnostic process is critically important for those diagnosed with ADHD because it helps to validate an emotional, uh, neurological, and disruptive kind of experience they've had for a very long time. Uh-huh. The diagnoses, we, we, we just cannot say enough about them because, as you and I both know, as I say, stress, technology, and information are creating overwhelm and overload for so many people in today's world yes. that everyone feels like they have it um, because of that, but not everyone does, right? So we have a very small sure. percentage of the world. Um, and you know, I say conservatively in three to five percent of uh, range, a good research, you know, have the condition. So diagnosis is critical. Then you've got to educate. What does it mean? How does it show up? These are the underactive areas of my brain. These are the things that can cause an executive functioning regarding focus and follow through and consistency. Um, then many times I'll take clients through personalizing strategies, David. How do you organize? How do you make mm-hmm. things out of things that are most difficult? Things that are very tried and true with ADHD coaches, with yourself as a practitioner. Uh, many of us work with adults to develop strategies that help them. Yeah, what in I the area that, that uh, it impacts them the most. Uh-huh. Absolutely. The areas where they're really greatest challenge. So, when I talk about uh, the emotional and mental stress of ADHD as an emotional distress syndrome, um, what I have done in helping clients is to, and I've used kind of three arenas, David. I've used what I call as the, um, the science of the mind. I use imagination, and I use relationship with yourself. And those three components uh, I've developed over the last 10 to 15 years of development in, in science as far as the mind is concerned is identified as neurological networks, right, that connect together to allow us to do the things we do. Mm-hmm. So in this case, if you have an emotional and mental stress of the diagnosis of ADHD because you're consistently disrupted, then you've got to create a new neurological network to rely on in your own mind's eye or your own imagination so that you can calm yourself, so you can stay centered, so you can stay grounded. Um, And so in the ideas of imagination, many of us with ADHD have a very rich imagination. Yes. (laughs) Shiny objects and interesting things. Uh, But if you take that imaginary kind of space 
and then you look at the relationship the individual has with themselves, they can begin to reflect on that relationship with themselves, right? And in, in the mindfulness of meditation, at the idea of being curiously observant with yourself, but you have a relationship with yourself that many times has been very difficult or distressed. In this case, I help it to start developing to be dynamic. Uh-huh. So what I've got is I teach people how to use the science of the mind, how to create literal virtual worlds, meaning things I conceptualize in my own mind's eye of my imagination in relationship with myself to circumvent or counterbalance the distress of ADHD when I trip over my words or I forget an appointment. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's and so go ahead. It sounds like you're helping people develop the skills that they have when something kind of comes out of left field and instead of knocking them out of balance, they have a way to figure, okay, I know how to get the balance back. Absolutely. And if you, if you look at the diagnostics and the uh, uh, genetic patterning of ADHD, yes, you get a, we know we have an underactive or an element in the executive functioning portion, right, that's, that's not operating as well as it could. You know, mm -hmm. so my planning, my prioritizing, my evaluating is more challenging to me. So, yeah, I get thrown out of balance. Well, I'm creating a counterbalance to that being thrown out of balance by literally creating these virtual worlds. Um, and I talk about this in great detail in my book on how to create and how to set this up. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, uh, I really like the, the, I guess you'd say that the subtitle of the book that navigating the storms in that it's right. not fixing it and you're done. You don't, land somewhere here I here I am I've made the destination but it's a an ongoing process it, it certainly is and I think if you talk with anyone with a diagnosis of ADHD they would tell you um, that that ongoing stress I talk about it as a neurological hum or kind of a, a you know that grind or that almost a um, um, you know a tinnitus in your mind that just mm -hmm. doesn't go away and so you have to learn how to navigate your life with it, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to consistently be frustrated or irritated or forget something. How do you rebalance and reset with it? That's yeah. really what I'm after, uh, and to teach my clients more effectively how to do. That, um, yeah, that all rings true. Um, one thing that I want to bring up from, I think it was my third podcast, and it's a concept given the name um, to it by Dr. Bill Dodson, a psychiatrist in uh, Colorado. And he and his group observed that most people with ADHD, when they perceive being unheard, ignored, rejected, bang, they're angry. Some are instantly yeah. depressed, which yeah. certainly, and that he feels is a, that's neurologic. It's part of the pathways yeah. It's it's not something you do anger management or anticipate it because it comes out of out of nowhere. Um, right. And I'm interested to to hear how you see that kind of folding into the emotional distress. It certainly 
is I think yeah. one of the things that affects relationships the most. All of a sudden, this person's raging angry because he said, why didn't sure. you empty the dishwasher or something? Right. And so when you get that emotional reactivity uh, that you're describing there, uh, that, again, is not something that goes away, but you learn to manage or you navigate your life more effectively. So in this case, say it is the dishwasher that you uh, forgot to unload or hadn't gotten to yet, uh, and a spouse or someone in the family just, you know, talks about, you know, when are you or have you done this? If you look at the layer of failure of that emotional reaction regarding having forgotten it before or things like it, that's where a lot of that emotional reactivity can come from. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's, yes, those consistent difficulties of emotional reactivity that will build as a disruption, almost like a fuel tank that becomes this huge component of distress uh, that really gets tapped into with a single question about mm -hmm. a dishwasher. Yep. And so you create a syndrome. That's where the emotional distress syndrome uh, develops from. Um, and that's how, it, yes, it evolves. And it's, and it's, it's no fun for the individual diagnosed no. with the condition. And it's certainly uh, not a cakewalk for families or for no, because the, to experience the, the intensity. It, I think that, of course, many... People, understandably, will say, well, why did you say that? Why did you do it? Kind of debriefing afterwards. And I think that's really a, an unfair question to ask someone with ADHD because we don't know why. It, well, that's the way my brain works. But to try well, to really right. come up with why is, is very difficult for the individual. Yes, and so if you look at the hypersensitivity and the reactivity, it is a it's a and when you're under distress like that, it's hard to think anyway. Oh yeah, it makes it more challenging. But you know, sometimes David, I will describe it to my clients as when you go into the doctor and he's doing your yearly physical, and he takes his uh, you know his reaction hammer and and hits on the uh, that autonomic or automatic reaction of the knee, right? Mm -hmm. And I tell people, well, you know, work it. All right, don't move your knee. I'm going to hit it again, but don't move your knee. It's almost yeah. impossible. Yeah, it's wired that neurological, way. It's wired that way, exactly. And so yep. how do you unwire? How do you wire in a different way? How do you support that wiring uh, that has come out of this emotionally reactive space for so many years? Um, and I tell you, it, it, this took me 27 years to really – figure out, David, and I understand why, because it is such such a huge breakdown for us uh, with adult ADHD and, and learning to navigate our lives more effectively with it. Sure, and I, I expect and certainly have identified, many patients have identified that, that trauma of your parents saying, how come you can't remember, how many times do I have to tell you this? Uh, some people, unfortunately, told, well, you're stupid, you're dumb, no wonder, you'll never amount to anything. And then teachers are doing the same thing. Well, just try harder. If you don't only really focus, you have right. so much potential, but you aren't doing it. Right. And that's uh, shaming, cause, uh, and kids particularly, I think adults as well, think, well, I'm, I must be defective. Instead of saying, sure. well, my, my behaviors aren't helpful, what can I change? It's, I'm bad. And, boy, that's, right. that's the whole cycle in motion. It, 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 it certainly does, and it builds over a lifetime. And there are 
uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that come into my practice who have developed coping strategies and mechanisms uh, that have insulated them from those kinds of responses or reactions. And, you know, many times it's some of them were raised in very healthy environments, and it's, it's not that the emotional stress doesn't affect them, uh, but it doesn't take the core of who they are and make them a broken or a bad person. Yeah, uh, and that's really the what you're talking about there. Uh, that's when it just starts to fold in on itself, and that's why I talk about it as a syndrome that just gets worse over time if you don't educate about it and don't develop skills about doing things differently with it. So, what are the the kinds of processes or things you you're actually doing? Um, are there things other than just interpersonal therapy or cognitive behavioral kinds of things that are helpful. Absolutely. So where I go about addressing it and giving folks skill sets and I identify, you know, kind of eight areas or eight tools in my book to really take a look at it. Um, and, you know, one of those that I like uh, that is the most fun is what I call therapeutic daydreaming. Huh. Therapeutic daydreaming is daydreaming for a deliberate reason of calming myself down or building these internal worlds as I talk about them in your imagination. And so suddenly someone daydreams for a purpose, whereas that's what the ADD have always been told daydreaming was a bad thing. I'm like, well, wait a minute. If we use yeah. it effectively, it may not be. It can help. Right, um, right. But I will tell you, uh, you know, I've mentioned these ideas of virtual worlds, so I'll clue uh, your audience in, and certainly encourage them to read my uh, the book Focus Forward that I've written. But these internal worlds, if we're using the science of the uh, mind and we're using imagination, let's take uh, the I, one world that I will help people create is to help um, with their self-esteem is the ideas of what, in some common worlds in psychology, it's called an emotional safe space environmental safe space it's a happy place it's it's a place that you envision in your mind's eye yep. uh, here's here's the difference I play with I will teach people in the science of the mind that that's a neurological network that you could begin to grow develop and mm -hmm. uh, it can be strong for you and the way you do that is you focus on using it and developing it so the ideas of this safe space is you create an environment in your imagination, in your mind's eye, where you get anything and everything you want in the blink of an eye, okay? It is magic. It is virtual reality. All that is true. And so I describe in my book that I have created mine over the last almost, right at now, 30 years of development and I understood the science about 20 years ago and began to work with it. But I refer to my own sense of a safe space in my book that I uh, can ground or see myself in. So an example I could tell people that I've created in my own mind's eye of imagination that I use is I have a 10-foot uh, ring of 100-foot tall pine trees. It's 42 degrees outside. There's a full moon out. There's an owl hooting in the tree. There's a perfect fire in the middle of this ring of trees. And I can see myself sitting next to that fire, relaxing, feeling mm -hmm. warm, you know, feeling connected. Yeah. Now, 
I've got the imagination. Now, what I want people and my clients to do is I feel disorganized. I'm scared about taking a risk or doing something different in my life. They imagine or just <clears throat> keep in their mind's eye this idea of sitting next to, say, this fire, and it helps to ground their neurological uh, anxiety or fear into a place where they feel calmer or they feel more connected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is a very small component of something that I teach clients how to do. Uh, and so I educate them how to create these ideas of virtual worlds uh, so that they can ground themselves. And yeah, David, I will tell you, 15, 20 years ago when I started doing this even for myself, it, it did feel a little crazy-making. It felt a little mm -hmm. schizophrenic in the sense of like, but it was starting to help. And I knew what I was doing in the sense of feeling calmer. Right. Now, teaching people about it, it becomes a fun adventure. And that's why I'm saying, you know, the ideas of therapeutic daydreaming, people can really do things and daydream for a reason. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. And I think this, I've certainly not seen specific numbers on it, but I suspect most of us with ADHD do have really strong visual memory, particularly yeah. when there's an emotional um, part of it, a uh, quotient with it. Absolutely. So this then folds into that. Maybe you're pulling some things from your memory in that and other right. maybe something you visualized when you were reading something about it so that you can right. make this safe space where you're at peace, you're grounded, you feel connected, and yes. nothing can interrupt that. It's yours. Correct. And you're, you're Correct. safe, um, which is kind of along the lines of the relaxation, desensitization process. But I think there's more Absolutely. security and I'm, I'm in control, but I'm also at peace. I don't have to worry about other stuff right now other than well, enjoying basking yeah. in the fire. Well, exactly. And the other piece is that it, it begins to develop a very personalized, customized relationship with yourself. But you're right. It's not directed by the outside world or influences of judgment or criticism, uh, which is way so often the case that folks with diagnosed with ADHD feel that. And so I'm teaching them to really uh, neutralize and begin to calm those neurological networks of emotional reactivity, as you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I really have. I've laid out a really um, a wonderful aspect of that in my book, Focus Forward. And, and by the way, I did do um, – uh, I read the book myself in a professional recording studio because of the personal nature. I really wanted people to be able to hear it in my words as well. Mm -hmm. So, and I knew that people with attention issues many times have a hard time staying focused or really connected to print-related books. So there is a great audio version as well. It's about great. four hours and 40, 45 minutes long, but it makes it very easy to go take a, a day trip somewhere and listen to it to get the information that you need. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the the exciting things I um, read about a, a, maybe three or four months ago was um, the fact that looking at now 
functional MRI has such good resolution okay. that um, the thickness of nerve bundles can be measured when doing them while someone is doing a thinking task. You can actually look at neural networks and some people three months on happened to be a Ritalin type medicine, a methylphenidate, were able to make mm -hmm. new neural networks better. So here the wow. combination, because you're developing these neural networks in developing your virtual spaces, and hopefully you'd be able to do that even better with medication. So I think those Absolutely. two things fit together. Well, they do because the medication really does help you to focus and stay on point and concentrated more effectively, and that's wonderful to hear you know, about the development of MRI or fMRIs and, and being able to look at the brain structure. And um, I joke that uh, my youngest son is 21 and uh, really interested in the space of neuroscience. He's a jazz musician. And anyway, he's headed toward a Ph.D. in neuroscience. He's looking to get into graduate school next year. And I, I told him, I said, you ever get an fMRI machine uh, in a lab that you're working in? I'd love to look at my own neural nets. Uh, and see yeah. how well they're built over the years. It's just fascinating I'd, to me. I'd I'd love to look at uh, jazz musicians and how their neural no, networks, okay. um, in terms of talk about associations and oh, I think I'll go down this path for a while. But being exactly. able to do that in music and in their head is it's yes, fascinating. Yes, very much. What all of us can do if number one we get past all this emotional stuff that stands in the way sure. and start to. Yeah believe in ourselves and, th and um, I think your your work is exceptional in terms of putting that together using the strengths of ADHD often the visual memory being able to as Bill Dotson say play in the sauce of your own mind um, Absolutely. but Absolutely. but I guess uh, with the intent of making the recipe and getting somewhere so the intentional <laughs> Um, daydreaming is that's a, a great concept yeah it really it helps to calm uh, and gives you a skill set to kind of hang it on which is really important uh, but I really really love the work I do and uh, I really love educating and empowering my clients so that they really do have new skill sets to take away with them um, and I'm, I'm thrilled about uh, the response of my book uh, and some of the recommendations that it's received on Amazon and those kind of folks and the uh, folks in the field, Dr. Howell and Sari Solden and some other folks uh, who are readers for my book who are really, really pleased and happy that uh, we have some uh, good ideas uh, to manage this emotional and mental stress that comes with the condition so often. Yeah, I think it's great. It's certainly going to go on my recommended reading list for uh, patients and I, I think it right. is a uh, right. being able to hear about and see when one needs to go back and reread parts of those eight different uh, tools you talk about would be Absolutely. great additions to uh, anyone's toolbox for ADHD. Well we need to Absolutely. wrap it up at this point. My guest has been James Ochoa, a licensed professional counselor down in Austin Texas, and author in his latest book of Focused Forward, which has eight different tools um, that those of us with ADHD can learn, develop, and take on skills so that we can have a better relationship with ourselves 
and then be able to navigate some of those issues that come up without being totally knocked off balance. James, it's uh, been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate it, David. And yeah, my book is on Amazon, like I said, the audio version, and folks can get a hold of me. Uh, my website is www.tlec.info, uh, and I've got lots of information on there about the book and other services, uh, but also great information for folks to have about ADHD. And I really appreciate the podcast that you're doing, David, uh, and getting good information out there about the nature of ADHD and uh, how that affects people. Well, thank you so much. This is Dr. David Pomeroy, the host of ADHD Focus, and I hope you've enjoyed and benefited from today's show, and we'll be back another time with some more good information for you. Until then, be well.